Well, good morning. It was, uh, it was not our uh, original intention for, for me to be preaching this morning, but I am very thankful to have this opportunity. In fact, it's, it's just so good to be back in this gym, just with a few friends around, and uh, it just gives you that, that hope that one day soon we will be back together. We'll be singing together and worshiping together. Uh, it just, I, I long for that day, and I know many of you are feeling the same way. So continue to pray, uh, continue uh, to hope in things above. Uh, one day soon, we will be back together, and then for all eternity, we will be worshiping together. Also, uh, please be praying for Pastor Shane. Like I said, originally, uh, he was supposed to be teaching this morning. We found out at the end of the week that his father had to get emergency triple bypass surgery. So Shane drove to Alabama to be with his family. Uh, so be praying for him. The surgery did go well. Uh, which is a blessing, uh, but continue to pray for his father and for his family and for Pastor Shane. So when Shane asked me to step in this week, I started thinking through, you know, what should I teach? Where should we go in the Word of God? Uh, and I tell you, last week's message from Matthew 4 was very impactful for me. Uh, it was very, not only refreshing, but just refining. But to hear that call to make disciples, to remind us of our purpose on this planet, and then to see Christ as the perfect example of a disciple maker, the way he showed patience and devotion and love to those he was teaching and training. And I needed that reminder. I needed that, that, that reminder of our calling and our mission to go and make disciples, that precision, that don't forget why we are here, to be teaching others, to observe all that Christ has commanded us in his word, and to be patient and loving as we come alongside others and we strive to point them to Christ as we ourselves are looking to him, to following him. So I thought a good place for us to go this morning would be 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. One of the reasons I thought that would be a good place to go is in the youth and college group, we just finished studying uh, the letter of 1 Peter. We've been studying it for the last year and a half. So this has been on my mind for a long time. Uh, First Peter has changed me over the last year and a half, and it's been very, very uh, impactful. And, and in fact, these verses right here, uh, for me, were, were a huge uh, uh, charge and, and a huge uh, motivation uh, because it's such a clear and simple exhortation and explanation in the Word of God of the nature and purpose of the church, what we are in Jesus Christ and why we are here. It's a very precise and simple description of, of what we are and why we're on this planet in this present age, and it's a reminder of how we are to live each day as Christians. In fact, 1 Peter as a whole is like that. It's a letter of encouragement. It's a letter of exhortation, and it's written to suffering believers so that they would rejoice in their suffering, so that they would stand firm in the truth of Christ while they suffer and die in this life. And that's always a gift for the Christian. Suffering is a grace gift of God because suffering refines our lives and rivets our affection and our attention on Jesus Christ. Like Philippians 1.29 says, suffering is a grace gift. Our merciful, loving, kind, good, perfect Father graciously gives us the gift of suffering in this present life. And as Christians suffer, it forces us 
to trust our Father rather than ourselves. As we suffer, we are forced to give up our will and our desire, the very thing he calls us to do as his disciples. Suffering helps us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus Christ. Because in suffering, we realize there really isn't any other thing or any other way. It's in suffering that our love and our trust in Jesus Christ grows because during that time, he always proves himself true and faithful. When we suffer, the Lord exposes the faith that he has put in us and through the fires of suffering, he always purifies us, refines us, and displays his perfect work for man and angels to witness when he changes us more and more into his image. I was telling the youth in the college, suffering is the path of holiness, and suffering is the path of Christ. 1 Peter 4, 12-19 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Why? So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In verse 19, he says, therefore, though, uh, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Suffering gives us the opportunity to entrust our life and our soul and our good to God by submitting and obeying and trusting him, even while our mind and our will may be fighting against us. To willingly submit and obey while suffering brings peace and joy because we are able to experience the love and comfort of our Father and witness the words of Christ proving themselves true right in front of our eyes. Suffering gives us the opportunity to be faithful and suffering clears away the distractions that keep us from faithfulness. That is why I think one of the most clearly stated declarations of the nature and purpose of the church comes right in the middle of a letter written to Christians who are suffering in deep ways. Because when we suffer, we get to the business of doing God's work. So open your Bibles to 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, and let's read together. Actually, let's read verses 4 through 12 together just to give ourselves the surrounding context. In 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4, the Lord says to us, And coming to him, speaking of Jesus, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, speaking to the church, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. And here's our verses. But you 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Pray with me quickly, and let's ask the Lord to help us to understand this. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And we know, Lord, that we are dependent upon your spirit to comprehend things that are spiritually appraised, things that come from you to us. And so we ask you this morning, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Help these things penetrate our heart and convict our soul to live faithfully for you in this life. We pray this in your heavenly name. Amen. So what is the nature and the purpose of the church? The nature and the purpose of the church. Well, right here in verses 9 and 10, Peter explains this to us very clearly. So the first thing we're going to look at is the nature of the church. The nature of the church. And the first thing we see here is our nature or our new character in Jesus Christ. We are new creations if we are truly in Christ. He has done something to us and he will perfect that work all the way until we see him face to face. So who are we and what has Christ done to us and for us? Look at verse 9. The first thing we see here is that we, the church, we Christians are a chosen race, a chosen race. The word race here is the word genos, which is the the word we get our English word gene from, uh, which is the basic unit of heredity or or genealogy, the study of our ancestry or the study of of our heredity. It's a people group that's united by relation. That's the idea here either biologically or through a lineage. Uh, it's, it's family, it's kin, it's offspring, it's descendants. He's saying here that we are chosen family. If you look at the, the other uses of this in the New Testament, you see it uh, a, a common denominator of lineage or of heritage in all of the translations. This same word is used to describe Joseph's family. It's used to describe the descendants of the high priest. It's used to describe people from the Syrophoenician race. It's used to describe Abraham's family. It's used to describe children of God. It's used to describe uh, countrymen. And it's also used to describe Jesus as the descendant of David. So the shared quality in all these translations is a hereditary relationship. There's something that, that, that brings these people together through relation. When we talk about being chosen... We talk about being picked out, selected, elected. When you put together chosen and family, it's the idea of adoption. God handpicks and chooses his children and brings them into his family. It's how he chose Abraham. He chose Israel. He chose David. This is why we are called children of Abraham. We don't don't become Israelites We are chosen by God to be children of faith, just like Abraham, so that Abraham would be in our uh, ancestry as children of faith. It's what 
Jesus is talking about in John 1, 11 through 13, or said of Jesus, that he came to his own, speaking of Israel, and those who were, who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus Christ has the authority and right to give to us the ability to be children of God, to be born again now of God, and to be chosen family. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 8 when he says, you, speaking to the Christians, have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. This is what it means to be chosen family. God always chooses all of his children. He handpicks them out of the world because he knows them all. He already had their names written in his book from the beginning of creation, Revelation 13 and 17 tells us. He selects them with purpose and he selects them for a purpose and he empowers his children with his spirit to accomplish his purpose. We are chosen family. It's what Jesus says in John 6 when he says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Or what Paul says in Ephesians 1, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. We are chosen family of God. Look at the next words. He says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood a royal priesthood. The word royal here means belonging to the king. The root of this word is used 311 times in the New Testament, and it always refers to kingly stuff, royal stuff. It's used to talk about King David, King Herod, Jesus being king. It's used to talk about palaces and kingdoms, things that belong to the king. So he's saying here that we are royal. We are representatives of the king. We are related to the king. I mean, think about that. Christians are baptized with royal blood. We are adopted into a royal family, and we will inherit the thrones rightly given to those of this family. In fact, in Revelation 26, it says, during the thousand years when Christ reigns on the earth, we will be both priests and kings and will reign with Christ for a thousand years. This isn't just figurative. This is what the Lord promises. So we are the king's priests. The priesthood here is, is referring to the role of the Levites, the Levitical role. In fact, in Malachi 2.7, you see a good description of the purpose of the Levites, the purpose of the priests. He says in, in Malachi 2.7, 
For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he, the priest, is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That's what we are in Christ. We are messengers of the Lord of hosts. We are selected, chosen family, and we inherit this office by birth, by being reborn in Christ, just like the priests of old. The priests would stand, they would serve in the name of the Lord forever, preserving the knowledge of God. If you look in the Old Testament, the priests were holy. They were, they were dedicated, sanctified, set apart. Even within Israel, Israel was chosen and set apart. And then within Israel, the priests were set apart to do the work of God, to call the people to repentance, to remind them of God's truth, to do all of the, the sacrifices and Levitical things uh, to help the nation of Israel be right with God. They were to preserve the knowledge of of God and do his service. They do the will of God. So we then together are royal priests. We are messengers of the king of all the universe sent here to proclaim his word and his gospel to mankind and to remind them, all the people of the earth, to repent and follow and fear him. This is our commission. This is our purpose in this present age. We are sent by the true King Jesus Christ to preserve wisdom, to proclaim truth, to sanctify his people, and to call the world to repentance and to faith. We are messengers of the Lord of hosts. We are heralds of the King. So we are a chosen family. We are a royal priesthood. And look at what he says next. We are a holy nation. To be holy means to be set apart. It means to be reserved by God for his service. Only God makes holy. And what he makes holy, he has declared his for his purposes and for his service. Now God is holy. He is set apart from all things. And unlike anything else, in perfect purity and perfect holiness, he is the, the, the epitome of perfection. And his people, he says, are also holy. His people are set apart by him from all others for his work. They're set apart, uh, uh, and they set themselves apart, I'm sorry, from the world through humble, submissive obedience to God. Again, in 1 Peter, Peter calls the Christians to holiness. He says in 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16, like the Holy One who called you, so that's what his character is, who, uh, you yourselves be holy also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we are, as Christians, a holy nation. The word nation here is the word uh, ethnos, which we get our word, our English word, ethnic or ethnicity. It means a large group of people that share the same culture, the same religion, the same language. It's a number of people that live together and share these things together. It's a large people group. So think about Israel. The same thing was said of Israel, and Israel's a good example for us. Not that we are Israel, but it gives you a, an idea of what God is trying to say here. God took this nation out of Egypt. He took them out into the middle of the desert. He put them in front of a mountain and came in darkness and fire and ratified a covenant with them, told them exactly who he is and what they were called to be. He laid down in Leviticus everything that they were to do, both morally, religiously, uh, uh, culturally, that they, they were to live distinctly different than all the other nations of the earth. And in doing so, prove that they were his holy nation and that that was the role of Israel. Like I said, we are not the new Israel, but 
we are the church and we are a holy nation, a holy ethnos, a holy group set apart by God to share the same beliefs, to share the same morals, to share the same purpose and mission. We have the same king and the same father and we're on this earth to do his work. We are a holy nation. We're a group of people that, that share all of the same standards to accomplish the will of God in the way that God has predestined. It's what Ephesians 2 talks about. After he talks about us being saved by grace through faith, uh, and that not of ourselves is a gift of God, he goes on to say in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works. So, so God, grace gifts us salvation, creates us in Christ, and leaves us here to accomplish his work which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's our purpose on this earth. We are a holy nation, and we are called to live that way. We're saved by grace, created to do his work. This is our calling. So we're a chosen family. We are royal priests. We're a holy nation. And then look at the fourth point here. He says, we are a people for God's own possession. A people for God's own possession. Now this word people here, it's a different word than the word we just looked at, but it has the same kind of idea. It's a large people group. The difference between this word and the word we use for nation uh, is, is basically in the way that it's used. 142 times in the New Testament, this word is used. And almost every single time, it refers specifically to the people of Israel or the people of the church. It's always used to talk about the people that belong to God, never used to talk about the Gentiles or the nations or those who are outside of the people of God. These are the people of God. And that's what he says here. They're God's own possession, or we are God's own possession. We belong to God. We were acquired by God with the blood of his son. We were ransomed, purchased, bought with a price. And we are his treasured possession. Titus 2, 13 through 14 talks about this. Paul tells Titus, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And look at the nature and character of these people, people that are zealous for good deeds. That's what it means to be God's people. He, he creates us in Christ. He puts us here to do his work. He laid those works out before the foundation of the world. And then we are zealous, fervent to walk in them to do those good deeds. We want obedience. We want submission. We want to please our Father. We want to honor Him. We want to obey Him and be more like Him, and we cannot wait to see Him. That's what is inherent in the people of God. It's what we are. In Romans 9, he talks about this. He says, what if, what if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, speaking of Christians, which he, God, prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. There it is again. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. God takes people who were not his, who belong to Satan, and he buys them with the blood of Christ. He ransoms them. He makes them his children. 
They become heirs of the throne. They become the heirs of the inheritance of Christ. We become chosen family. We belong to God. We are his own possession. And like Hebrews 8.10 says, we were bought with the blood of Christ. This is part of the new covenant. And he says, I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. He makes his children his children through the blood of his son. So we are a chosen family. We are a royal priest. We are a holy nation. We belong to God. So why not bring us home right now? Why? Why doesn't the Lord, in love and kindness and mercy, the moment that we believe and we're made a new creation, kill us and bring us home? Why are we still here on this planet? Why do we have to walk through suffering? Why are we left in a world of sin? What is our purpose if we are now born again? Wouldn't it be wonderful for him to go ahead and give us to his son as the bride of Christ, love gifts from the father to the son for all eternity so that the son will be glorified and the father can show his love to the son like he says he's going to do? Well, that, that would be a good thing. But it's all about timing. It's just not time for that. Right now is the time of the church, and right now is the time for him to redeem all of his people. Right now is the time for him to find the bride. Right now is the time for us to find our brethren. So why are we left on this earth? What is the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church. Well, he makes it really simple. He gives us a purpose clause, and then he tells us our purpose. We are all of these things that he has made us to be in Jesus Christ. And then he says, here's why you are still here. Look at it. He says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here is our purpose. Here is why we are on this earth. And the first thing we see here is our purpose on this planet is to proclaim Jesus Christ. We are here to proclaim Jesus Christ. That is why you are alive. That is why you exist. That is why you are breathing right now. If you are born again and you still have life in you today, then you are alive to proclaim Jesus Christ. That is why we are here. He says, we proclaim the excellencies of him. We will proclaim his excellencies, and as we do that, his children will be drawn to him. His bride will hear his voice. They will come to him. Just like Jesus said already in John 6, those who come to him, he will not cast out. He will save his children. The word proclaim here, it means to tell out loud, to make it known. It's used many times in the Old Testament, in the Psalms. To, to proclaim the works of God, to proclaim the wonders of God, to proclaim the praises of God, to proclaim the will of God. And we are called to proclaim the excellencies of God, the excellencies of Christ. We are called to proclaim his perfections to the earth. We tell the world of Jesus Christ and all of his perfections. We tell them of his incomparable character. We tell them of his glory. We tell them of his praises. We tell them of his perfect qualities. We tell them his love, his goodness, his righteousness, his mercy, his grace, his gentleness, his patience, his kindness, his faithfulness, 
his power, his presence, his anger, his will, his plans, his judgment, his salvation, his redemption. We tell them his gospel. We tell them his word. That is why we are here. Nothing else compares. We are here to proclaim the excellencies of God, the excellencies of Christ. This is the commission of the church. This is what we're on this planet to do. We proclaim who Jesus Christ is and what he has done and what he will do. It's what Jesus did with his disciples before he ascended to heaven. And it's what he called them to do. And it's what he has called us to do. If you look at Luke 24, right before he ascended, Luke 24, verses 44 through 48, it says, Now Jesus said to them, speaking to his disciples, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. And then, look at this, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's not a hope. That's a promise. That's exactly what he's doing and what he will do. He says, beginning from Jerusalem, and he says this to his 12, and it's the same thing to you and to me if you believe in Jesus Christ. You are witnesses of these things. We are witnesses Church, we are witnesses of the excellencies of Christ. We know him. We know his word. We know his power. We have his spirit. Just like the disciples, our minds have been opened by God to understand the words of God. And we believe all that is written. And we must proclaim his excellencies. His children will listen. Just like we heard his voice they will hear his voice as we proclaim his excellencies. But not only do we proclaim his excellencies, look at what else he tells us to proclaim. We proclaim our own transformation. We proclaim the power of his work that is, that is seen in us, what has happened to us. He says, you proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people. Now you are the people of God. You once had not received mercy. Now you have received mercy. We tell others that we were darkness. Now we are light. We were sinful. We were dead in our sins. We were hostile to God. We were enemies of God. We were unrighteous, ungodly, unholy. We were anti-Christ. We were enslaved to our desires, enslaved to our appetites, enslaved to the will of our minds and our, our hearts and our flesh. We were without hope, we were helpless, and we were unable to seek him, unable to know him, unable to do anything good in his sight. We were evil, and his wrath rightfully weighed down on us. That's what we were, because that's what he says we were. But now, now, we have been made alive. We have been raised up with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We are now holy, not because we did anything to accomplish holiness, because that's impossible, but because he did something to accomplish holiness, which is only possible through him. We are now sanctified. We are now glorified together with him, and we will reign together with Jesus Christ eternally. 
We have been redeemed. We have been ransomed. We have been bought with the precious blood of the spotless lamb. We are no longer sinful, no longer darkness. He has transformed us. It's what Acts 26, 15 through 18 says. Jesus talking to Saul, who would become Paul, telling Saul exactly why Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and what his purpose would be on this planet. He says to Saul, for this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only of the things which you have seen, but also the things that, uh, in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to, the, to, to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. We have the same calling as Paul. Go into the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and I will be with you to the end of the age. This is our calling and our purpose. And we tell them how he took us out of darkness into light, out of the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. We are not what we once were. And you need him as much as I need him. We tell others, he says, that we were not a people, now we are the people of God. In other words, we were once children of Satan. We were once separated from God. We were once walking according to the course of this world, living according to the prince of the power of the air. We were sons of disobedience. We indulged in the desires of our mind and of our flesh, and we were rightfully children of wrath, deserving the wrath of God. And that same God sent his son to die for us and to draw us out of that and to bring us into his kingdom, make us his people. And now we have been chosen. We have been selected. We have been elected. We have been adopted. We are children of God. We are heirs of his kingdom. We're cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're a chosen family. We are to proclaim that to others. And we tell others that we had not received mercy and now we have received mercy. We were accountable for every thought, every word, every action we had ever done. And anything, anything that wasn't 100% holy, 100% perfect, 100% pleasing to him, will receive his wrath. And we have no mercy. That's what we tell them. Every word, every deed, all those things, his wrath was weighing heavily upon us. And he is just and holy, and we are sinful and guilty. But then he showed us mercy. And by his mercy and his gift of grace, we now are no longer under the wrath of God that we rightfully deserve. But we receive the blessings of God that only his son deserves. That's what we were. Here's what he has made us. We are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ and we are to proclaim what he has done in our lives. Beloved, we are chosen family. We are royal priests. We are a holy nation. We belong to God. We live on this planet still so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, who has adopted us and made us children of God, who has shown us unending, undeserved mercy, grace, and love. And we must testify to what we know and we must bear witness to what we have been given. And we must proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ to everyone. 
with all patience, all gentleness, all reverence, and all love. In the same way, he did it to us through the mouths of his saints. Nothing else matters in comparison to this. Do you understand that? Nothing else matters in comparison to this. This is why you live. Nothing else on this planet is more important than this. This is why we exist. This is how we glorify him. This is how we walk in faithfulness and honor and worship him on this earth. Like Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, he tells him, you must retain the standard of sound words which you have heard. Guard through the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, the treasure that has been entrusted to you. The things that you have heard, entrust those to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Paul tells Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That's not just written to pastors. That's all of us. Preach the word. Tell others. Great patience and instruction. Go and make disciples just like he showed us, just like he commanded us, just like he has done to us and for us. This is our calling. This is our purpose. Brothers and sisters, do not forget we were bought with blood, with the precious blood of the spotless lamb of God. Be faithful. Be careful how you live. Be holy like he is holy. Prepare your mind for action. Stay focused and fixed on Jesus Christ. Live in relentless devotion to him alone. Live in the love and fear of our Lord Jesus Christ and be found faithful. He is coming and he is coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your spirit. It is so easy for us to get distracted. It is so easy for us to place more importance on things that are not even comparable to, to this calling and to our allegiance to you. Father, help us. Help us to fix our minds and our hopes on Christ, to fix our minds on, on, on his return to, to drive us to, to obedience and submission and faithfulness in this life, that we will honor you and please you and love you. Help us, Lord, to remember who we are. We are chosen family of God. We are a holy nation set apart. We are royal priests sent by the king to proclaim the message of God on this earth. We belong to God let us faithfully daily to our children, to our spouses, to our family, to our, our em employees, uh, to our, our em uh, people at work and at school, wherever we may be, help us to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ and to proclaim how he has transformed us from children of Satan to children of God, taken us from darkness and brought us into light. Help us to proclaim your wonder wondrous transformation and the grace and mercy and love that we have received from you. We pray all these things in your heavenly name. Amen.